0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is an employee-owned company that has been offering organic, gluten-free, and stone-ground products for decades. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality – You're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely. You're irreplaceable.
2: Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L E. C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com.
1: Welcome back to Modernist Breadcrumbs. I'm your host, Jordan Werner-Berry, here with executive producer Michael Harlan turkel Museums make me hungry. I don't know if it's because you're not allowed to bring in food or drink, or because I spend most of my time searching for paintings of consumables. But either way, thinking about art is linked in my brain to more than just a creative appetite. In this episode, we're exploring the intersection of bread and art, and the idea of bread as art. From Renaissance paintings of the Last Supper, complete with pretzels, and still lifes from the Dutch Golden Age, to scoring videos on Instagram, the aesthetics of bread, and all that it symbolizes, have long been on display. After all, isn't Dutch crunch bread, also known as tiger bread, just the baking world's answer to abstract expressionism? put it side by side with Jackson Pollock's autumn rhythm and try to tell me they're not the same thing. Nathan Mirvold, founder of Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, has spent more than his fair share of time being hungry in a museum. As we consider bread in art history, let's join him at the Louvre.
3: So if you're looking for pictures of bread... There's probably no better place than Louvre. And I spent a day there running around looking for pictures of bread. Now, of course, art historians tend to be fairly serious-minded folk who are interested in artists. They're interested in the regions the artist came from. They're interested in the subject. Damn it, they don't index by where the pictures of bread are. So about the best you can do is to walk fast through the galleries, like, okay, bread, 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 oh, look, there's the the Last Supper, let's look. And sometimes you're lucky and sometimes you're not. Besides the religious things, where Last Supper is a big one, the parable of the loaves and the fishes, that's great. (laughs) By the time you got into the 1500s and the 1600s, you started having more paintings of everyday life. The Dutch School of Painters was very active in this time period. And so there's some wonderful 16th century paintings of bakeries. There's a a great one that shows a baker with all of this freshly baked bread, including pretzels and all kinds of other breads, blowing this big horn. The same way that food trucks tweet. (laughs) That's how the baker would tell everybody in the village, hey, the bread is ready. Come and get it. (laughs) So you would also see scenes of agriculture and of people doing various things. And then over time, that really became a, a larger part of art than religious scenes. But it still had this problem that what you would prioritize if you were a bread historian would be a set of things that just would seem very commonplace. So unless you had an artist that really wanted to accurately show the commonplace things, it's very, it's really very tough.
2: Jean-Francois Millet proudly painted scenes reflecting his peasant upbringing in Normandy. Besides the realistic romantic landscapes he depicted as part of the Barbizon School, his Paysan and Ferrant Sompon, or A Woman Baking Bread, from 1854, shows the daily and often invisible work of a woman feeding her family. Looking at landscapes is a good way to find the rest of the process. Monet's 25 canvas series, Haystacks, illustrates sheaves of grain primarily used for bread, despite its name. And Van Gogh's dozens of wheat fields paintings demonstrate his progression as an artist, from the drab wheat sheaves he painted in the Netherlands in 1885 to the vibrant, dramatic pieces he painted in France later in his career. Van Gogh was inspired by Monet's peasant genre, and often included the field laborers in his wheat-focused work.
3: That's one of the interesting biases in the pictures of bread. We know a lot more about the bread that rich people ate, or kings ate, because, you know, first you're painting pictures of God and other religious scenes. Then the next thing to do is, well, okay, the king, because we want to make the king happy, so we'll do that, and then you get nobles and aristocrats and then just sort of rich people. But it takes a while before artists decide, hey, it's worthwhile painting poor people and showing what their life is really like.
1: It's funny to think that a golden age could be a time of flourishing democracy. But if we look to the Dutch, we'll see that it wasn't just a Game of Thrones. Maite Gomez-Rijon, the founder of Art Bites, tells us that sometimes the subjects and banquets were more relatable.
4: There's a painting at the Met in New York by Peter Bruegel. It's called The Harvesters, and it's a group of peasants that are literally in the fields and some of them are working and then some of them are on the side enjoying a a banquet. But even in this time period in the Dutch golden age, it was such a wealthy country. It was such a tiny country that was so wealthy. For the first time in history, art was something that was available for, for everybody. It wasn't something that only the church could afford or only the aristocracy or the super wealthy could afford. There was this rise in the middle class and there's evidence that, you know, bakers and cobblers and just these, these not necessarily peasants, but, but sort of working people could, could afford paintings and everybody was eating, in this time period, it was the rich and the poor and the peasants, they were eating the same type of bread. And so whatever we would see in the paintings, that was consumed by all classes, whereas in earlier centuries, like the Middle Ages, the wealthy were eating the white bread and the poor were eating the sort of rye and the sort of darker breads. By the time we get to 17th century, it was pretty democratic.
1: Further back in history, when the canvas was more likely a wall, bread was a subject of life and death.
4: There are frescoes in ancient Egyptian tombs that depict Flatbread. And also people were buried with granaries, with like little model granaries, going back to ancient Egypt. Ancient Greece has, there are stamps for bread, so they would brand their bread, so we have evidence of that. And then also going back to ancient Rome, there are a lot of frescoes and mosaics that depict either bread, or people sticking bread in the oven. And those are normally from places like Tunisia, that was the granary of ancient Rome. So we see a lot going back, you know, thousands of years. Gods and goddesses, like Ceres and Demeter, Greek and Roman goddesses of, of grain. So we see them depicted since antiquity. And then with the fall of the Roman Empire and the rise of Christianity, this bread is now associated with the body of Christ. So we see images of bread in devotional prayer books. So we see sort of little images of bread and of wheat kind of on the sides of these devotional books. And then with the Renaissance, with this renewed interest in antiquity, we start seeing them food and feasting depicted in paintings.
1: The evolution of the still-life genre during the Dutch Golden Age and throughout Europe changed the face of bread and art forever. After all, isn't our modern obsession with Instagramming our food just a quick way of capturing a still life?
4: You have the Venetian glasses symbolizing trade, and then you have oysters that are going to rot, and you have flowers that are out of season. So there are all of these images, and, and they have a moralizing lesson to, you know, essentially you're gonna die. So you have flowers that are out of season and these flowers have little bugs in them and they're starting to rot if you look closely. So there's this whole idea of you can indulge all you want, but if essentially this is gonna end. You have the bread in these paintings that are the only thing in these paintings that are untouched. This sort of symbolic of retaining a balance in, in your life.
1: We're on board with bread's deeper meaning, especially if it's the secret to a balanced life. But does that significance hold up when we shift from thinking about bread and art to the bread itself? Francisco Magoya, head chef of Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, considers the question, is bread baking an art or a science?
5: It's a... I think it's a slippery slope to answer that. I, I know that there are bakers who think they're artists. That's a bit presumptuous to me. A baker is a, a craftsman, a craftsperson. There could be an artistic inspiration to what you do, an artistic purpose to your work, but art produces one thing, one painting, one sculpture. Once you make 25,000 sculptures, is that still is that still artistic? And I would say that making 100, 200, 300 loaves a day, is not an artistic act. It is a science, but you don't have to be a scientist to make good bread. But if you understand the science behind it, you will make better bread. Are you an artist if you can score your bread beautifully, like with a beautiful pattern? No, you're just really good at scoring.
1: To dig more into the lines between art and craft, Let's listen in to a recent episode of HRN Happy Hour, another of Heritage Radio Network's 35-plus weekly shows. For this episode, Francisco joined MHT, Heritage Radio Network Communications Director and HRN Happy Hour host Kat Johnson, and guest Daniel Isengard. Daniel is a cabaret performer, personal chef, and author of The Art of Gay Cooking, a memoir that's styled as a literary appropriation of the Alice B. Toklas cookbook it was a meeting of the artistic culinary minds with the HRN shipping container studio serving as the salon.
2: I I will chime in about Daniel's book that I love the narrative that it's written in. And it's so anecdotal. Um, and that's part of the recipe too, the condition in which you cook it in the environment, the people that you're around and not to transfer this back to Francisco, but, uh, In one of our episodes, it's about microbes in people's hands and the human effect of things. And I wonder how that plays in the bread, because you can both answer this question. When someone makes a recipe and it doesn't work, they fault the recipe. But how much of it is the human condition? Thank you.
5: Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I really want to say something about that because
2: I, <laughs> Good.
6: I
5: can't tell you how many times I've heard the recipe doesn't work.
6: Oh, yeah. Oh, God. I, don't like, we love that? <laughs> you know,
5: this inanimate well. object is at fault for the recipe not working, but yet it works for, like, 2,000 other people. So that is is the challenge of writing a book, a cookbook. I mean, you try to write it for everybody, uh, but then there's going to be some people that either they forgot the yeast or they forgot the salt or they forgot... A step, but no, it just—it wasn't me. It was it was the book? The book, the book made me do
6: it. <laughs> there, there, there's a beautiful it. anecdote that uh, Richard Olney and Elizabeth David. So I hope some of your listeners will know who that was. Uh, Richard Olney was a an artist who moved to France and was a painter and became an authority in French cooking. And Elizabeth David, of course, the grand dame of uh, British food writing. And they were friends. And Judith Olney, the sister-in-law of Richard, overheard that when they discussed the recipe. She had tried a recipe for Soufflé à la Suisse, from Richard Olney, and she said to him, well, that did not work out at all. And his reply was, well, my dear, you must have been doing something wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that is the best reply. And I think the idea of a recipe is that it should give you a guideline. You need to try to understand what's going on, hopefully understand why the next step is the next step, and then you have to pay attention to what you're doing and pay attention to your ingredients and immerse yourself in the process and refer back to the book as little as possible. That's how I certainly cook, and I, and I encourage people to try that. Now, of course, there are certain things that are highly scientific, and there you need something else. But then you have to already be on a scientific level in your method. And if you are not, it's not going to help you. You have to develop your own sense of freedom because cooking is also at least when you do it at home, is also a bit about playing. And you should never lose that sense. And that's very gay, by the way, Mm -hmm. if I may (laughs) bring that (laughs) up. But because of my book title, obviously. Mm -hmm.
7: (laughs) So you both have backgrounds in art, and we can touch a bit more
1: on that. But speaking about being able to improvise and make mistakes in the kitchen and, and not worrying when things don't go exactly right, to both of you, do you think that having kind of a sensibility of being an artist helps with that?
5: There's certain things that you kind of do have to follow the recipe. So I'm going to respectfully disagree with. uh, (laughs) uh, No, because, for example, if I'm making a pâte à choux or I'm making ganache or I'm making a baguette, you need to start with some precision so that you can move through the steps. And uh, you can't really correct along the way with some of these things. I kind of sometimes like to be told what to do. Uh, with the recipe. And it's like, here's a recipe. And if you follow it, this is what you're going to get. And that's how I would say that the technique when I make art, it's, it's, I mean, sure, it's, there's, there's that uh, freedom to do whatever you want, but it starts with the, with the technique and it starts with the foundation that you can, you know, if, you, if it's pretty solid, if it's good, you can then move and, you know, do your own thing and, and so forth. But there's room for improvisation, even in the most precise things, but you have to know what you're doing first before you can have that freedom to improvise.
6: Oh, I, I-, I totally agree mm-hmm. with that. Absolutely, there's no question. There has to be a foundation, and also if you're a beginner, you don't start with uh, something that is elevated. So there's always a little bit of leeway, and that comes with experience. There's something that a recipe cannot really tell you, because then you really should go into the high precision of what temperature what should be, because all these things have some level of an influence. But I never meant to uh, say that you can mm-hmm. just throw everything up in the air and do just your own thing. <laughs> that's what you do when you're four year old and you just play at cooking. But you need to actually uh, have a result that is you know. But I think when you're at a certain level and you have a certain foundation, you also know that with very rare exceptions, nothing really bad can happen. I mean, uh, I would say, I mean, of course, you can always aim higher and do something more and more and more difficult each time. But generally, you know, you can do this. And then the fun comes when you make subtle changes in the moment, certainly influenced by the market and by the season. So let's not forget that, that you have to be in the moment and be able to react to it. And that's what art really is. Art needs to reflect the very moment with a perspective of the past and hopefully the future. And I think that as an artist, maybe you are more in touch with that playful side uh, that is part of all of us. And I think maybe that's where the artistry can come in.
1: So Francisco, you went to art school.
5: Well, so... I was going to go to art school. Ah. <laughs> and then my parents were like, are you sure you want to do that? Mostly because, you know, I have a lot of friends that are like, they're artists, but and they're very talented artists, but they're they're working at jobs that they don't want to work at because they wanted to try to keep going with the art and so forth. And so I tried to do a little bit, something more practical with the art part. And I thought cooking was going to be along those lines of having being having that ability to be artistic in a sense and then having that ability to make a living Um, and so I I wanted to make sure that I didn't have to you know have a job I didn't want to do in order to do the thing that I wanted to do and so I found that the happy medium was cooking for me I mean you don't have to cook with an artistic vision or sensibility but I feel like for me it's worked and that's that's I, I always try to apply that sort of well that aesthetic and that sensibility to everything that I do so and that includes food
1: and but food also kind of influences the art that you do now
5: yes sure I mean because it's a big part of my life and I think that that's you know you you, I don't want to speak for everybody but for the most part you 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 do what you know and what you're most familiar with it's like when writers write books they write from experience they write from experiences in their life maybe it's not like as obvious or as connected but it's you, it's always informed by something that, that is part of your life. And so, yes, a lot of what I do with art has to do with food, for sure. So.
6: Can I ask, so do you think that basically you've come full circle with this, that you've now maybe have enabled yourself to bring the art back stronger into your life after having gone through the regular uh, career path mm-hmm. of being a chef? That's I wonderful. think so,
5: mostly because I never had to force a living out of art. And so I was able to hard. to do it. Yeah, no, sure. It's yeah. very hard. Um, and so I think that I'm I'm at the point where I where yes, I'm I'm I can, I don't need I can do whatever I want artistically. Fantastic. Um and still be able to pay my mortgage, you know. So I think it's a happy medium for me.
6: Notice he didn't say rent, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well,
5: because I don't live in New, That's New York
6: big City. Difference. <laughs> if if <laughs> I lived there, in New <laughs> York City it would be
1: rent. <laughs>
8: so
0: <laughs>
1: good point about for that. For sure. <laughs> The obvious solution to the life of a starving artist is to make art that's edible. Swap your watercolors for a sourdough starter, your paintbrushes for a proofing basket, and let baking feed your artistic desires. While you get out your palette, we'll take a quick break for a word from our sponsors.
2: Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is an employee-owned company that has been offering organic, gluten-free, and stone-ground products for decades.
1: Is baking an art or a science? With products from Bob's Red Mill, it can be both. Every product is of the highest quality and is minimally processed from their stone mill in Oregon to your table. You can rely on products like the Bob's Red Mill Organic All-Purpose Flour or Organic Whole Wheat Flour to be the base of your baking creativity. So score away and explore your artistic side.
2: With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing. Visit bobsredmill.com and use the code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely. You're irreplaceable.
1: Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Le Creuset. La Creuset was the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. With that history and experience, they produce the finest quality in design, and they've been a favorite for generations through the meals they create and the style they express.
2: We're talking about bread and art in this episode, but what about bread in art? La Creuset's bold colors and timeless designs allow for an expression of personal style in the kitchen and beyond. Bread is mostly brown, so why not brighten things up with a Dutch oven in Marseille or Caribbean or Cassis? Ever since Le Creuset's founders added a fiery orange pigment to their enamel glaze, color has been at the heart of their work. Today, Le Creuset's range of signature shades continues to evolve, building on the best of the past and shaping the trends of tomorrow.
1: Original heirloom cookware, backed by a lifetime warranty, only from Le Creuset. Visit luckcrusadecom backslash bread to explore their entire collection of cast iron cookware and search the recipe page to get started. Enjoy special offers and free shipping with the code BREAD. Welcome back to Modernist Breadcrumbs. Francisco isn't the only baker with artistic sensibilities. The processes, or at least the thinking behind them, often overlap. Sarah Owens, who brought us The Beast in the first episode of this season, was a ceramic artist long before she was wrangling sourdough starters.
7: So I used to work as a ceramic artist, and I did that for about six years out of college. And professionally. (laughs) And what I found so interesting about the parallels between bread making and creating something with ceramics is that both you have to learn a craft first before you can really use that craft to express yourself in more of a creative way.
2: Ramertoff bread or baking under la cloche with James Beard often cited vessels and methods for baking in clay. But if this is an expression of what's on the inside that counts, then why are we so fanatical about the facade?
7: So with ceramics, it was a matter of using the medium in a way that I understood how it was going to respond to my actions. And with clay, you know, it has memory. And so I really became fascinated with this sort of scarification of the surface of the clay. And so when I began baking bread, that really immediately sort of transferred over. And so after I began to master the scoring techniques a little bit more, I found those parallels to be really similar in that, you know, I would create these uh, marks or cuts on the surface of the bread. and. Those would expand and change due to forces of heat and stresses on the you know, outside crust and steam. And so a lot of the concepts were similar, but it's, it's so important whenever you're trying to master any type of craft to really get the fundamentals of the medium down before you can become expressive within the creative art of it.
1: Scoring has become an internet phenomenon, with the Instagram algorithm putting hypnotic videos in the feeds of bakers and non-bakers alike. We asked Francisco Magoya, is there a purpose behind the performance?
5: So here's what has to happen for you to have like a beautiful pattern on a, on a loaf of bread. First is that it has to be a lowish hydration bread because once it's proofed and you start to cut it if it's like in the 80s 85s and you start to score it's going to start to just blob out and because some of these i don't know if you've seen but they take so long to do and you will notice also these beautiful patterns they usually the breads they don't do the cross-cut picture right and we're going to talk about Instagram again. Bakers that are bakers, they will show the crust, maybe. But what they like to show is cut the bread in half. Look at my giant crumb. Look at it. It's enormous and beautiful. And it's not about the crust. Whereas people who are just about doing that beautiful scoring, don't get me wrong. It looks beautiful. I don't know if it's a great loaf of bread. I don't know. Again, you can't You can have both things. You can't have the super open crumb and then have this like really... Uh, intense pattern on the surface.
2: When we're ready to fall into a bread-fueled trance, we look at the scoring hashtag. mixed in with Premiership goals, at Brooklyn Sourdough, at Wire Monkey Shop, at Sourdough Schoolhouse, and at Bread Journey, or like visual ASMR, cut after cut in intricate patterns. Score!
5: And there's a few people that, you know, like actual bakers that do like beautiful scoring on their breads, and then... You know they just did the one, right? Because if you have a loader with eight loaves of bread and they got to go in the oven, I've seen these like super geometric patterns. I'm like, there's no way, there's no way you're doing all of your eight loaves, 10, 12, 24, this way. But that's okay. You want to take a pretty picture? That's fine. I, I support that 100%. But we have to. It's important to think about the context of who's showing it why are they showing it who's who's liking it i mean it, it it is a very interesting world because bread is brown right and so you have to appreciate the beauty of things in it that are perhaps not obvious to everybody like the crumb so what is more obvious than the crumb a pretty crust that has a beautiful floral pattern on top and so that that is that is what each person is going to pander to is like those the strengths of that right
2: is it just clickbait Scoring food porn? Or does filling our feeds with beautiful bread give it a widespread visibility, creating new bread heads, one double tap at a time, and raising the populace's perceived value of a loaf of bread?
5: It is an interesting point, right? We value things that are pretty. So it's like style over substance, you know? But there there is an important stigma to think about with bread, which is people want bread to be cheap. And so we want people to pay more for bread or a more fair... Amount for bread. And I was talking with Nathan the other day about this interesting thing that that happens between the world of bread and pizza. If you think of a loaf of bread, most are either from 500 grams to 1,000 grams. It's a lot of dough, right? And you charge, if you're lucky, five, six, seven dollars for it. Pizza, Neapolitan pizza, it's 250 grams of dough. You add some sauce and some cheese, and that'll be twenty dollars. It's a fraction of the weight of the loaf of bread. It took a fraction of the time to make compared to the loaf. But yet, we don't hesitate to spend this much money on a pizza. Where a loaf of bread, if it's if it's $10, I mean, people are going to be like, no way. So that is kind of crazy to me. I mean, I will pay a lot of money for a good loaf, good loaf of bread. Because it, I know profit margins in bakeries are so low. And it's so much work to make bread. You have to sell so much bread just to stay afloat and pay salaries that why can't we pay a little bit more and then it benefits everybody the farmers everybody who's involved in the process that is something that we need to give more importance to and and i always put it on the baker you know asking them to do like a, a pretty score on the bread just so that they can sell more it probably means more time so it adds up so now they have to pay more salaries or the, or they have to compromise the quality of the bread because this Dough doesn't score very well, so now I have to make a different sort of bread. So, so like I said, I think that that's on us to, to appreciate that the craft of bread baking more and not put it completely on the shoulders of the bakers.
1: What about the bakers who don't sell their breads? Guy Frankel bakes under the pseudonym C-E-O-R Bread, C-E-O-R Bread on Instagram, where he explores the possibilities of what bread can become, and no, they're not for
8: sale. I I didn't start by uh, making the of you know, uh, bread, the fancy bread that I'm making now. I started very humbly, falling in love with natural fermentation, and then later on with fresh milling my own flours, and really focusing. I'm just making good, good, delicious, healthy bread. But along the way, my control of the dough of the medium got to a place where I felt that I could start having fun with it as an artist. In my formal education, I'm a visual artist. I went to school of visual arts. I'm a filmmaker. And so, once I gained a certain level of control over the material, I started exploring. The baking is an artistic expression and it's an artistic outlet. But I still wanted to stay within the framework of, you know, everything is organic and local and natural and wild and all of the the basic uh, philosophy behind my baking. But I was able to expand and find ways to make it more whimsical and playful and pretty and, and fun.
1: Guy is also one of the admins of the Perfect Sourdough Facebook group where 52,000 bakers from around the world share their loaves. He credits that group with some of his early inspiration.
8: I saw some examples of colorful doughs online on Perfect Sourdough. People were playing around with beetroot uh, bread, a beautiful hue of uh, beet, you know, like a purpley, reddish uh, color. And I started with that, and then I started looking for other hues and other ways, um, you know, to to play both inside the red and, and then on the outside, through stencils and scoring and making uh, interesting shapes. The interesting thing and sometimes the frustrating thing about the way I bake, and it's, it's like an artist, uh, like a painter painting... I don't work from recipes and when I start a bread I look around and I have maybe at any given moment twenty or twenty five different grains that I can reach for and combine in, you know, new and exciting ways. And so when I when I reach a peak or a bread that really outshines the the normal breads, it's it's gone. So every now and then come along these breads that, A, seem to gain, gain a lot of uh, attention online, but also that speak to me more than other ones. And, and, and for different, different reasons, right? Some are from, for the reason that they're beautiful, some for the reasons that the ingredients or the process behind making the bread uh, is very romantic, and, and the story behind it is magnificent.
1: Guy has taken his breads from the Earth with an emmer bread baked inside the clay of the soil where the emmer grew to the cosmos. His galaxy bread, a swirl of brilliant colors, was a mistake that you'd need a hitchhiker's guide to recreate. But as Bob Ross said, we don't make mistakes, just happy little accidents. When breads have this kind of story, what are they worth?
8: Bread is the most common and ubiquitous food, right? We eat it three times a day. We eat it for breakfast, we eat it for lunch, we eat it for dinner. And yet, it's somehow managed to maintain a very humble and very plain image. And part of my journey and part of my goal is to elevate the status of what bread can be, right? Bread can be a very humble, uh, you know, piece of bread to make a sandwich, but it can also be and, and wonderful and something that maybe perhaps you bring to dinner as a gift instead of a bottle of wine. Uh, like other fermented food, I feel like there's there's a place for bread to grow into the higher uh, higher edge of the, of the scale of what the bread can be. Well, I always say a $50 loaf compared to a $50 bottle of wine. You know, when you walk in with a $50 bottle of wine, you kind of sheepishly put it next to all the other $50 bottle of wines on the counter, and you go and shake the host's hand. But if you walk in with a $50 loaf, Everybody stops in the conversation, and and I've seen it happen many times with my bread. The conversation stops, and and people, you know, have a lot to say about it, and then if it really, you know, delivers as far as taste and all that, then then it's an amazing experience, and it changes the dinner party. And all of a sudden, people talk about good bread and what bread can be, and and gluten sensitivities disappear, and all of a sudden, everybody's enjoying a a well-fermented good bread.
1: Aligning bread with art rather than with sustenance raises its novelty and perhaps its price. But does it take it out of the realm of the consumable?
8: Well, yes, I think that the calling it art almost puts it out of reach and really makes it a case study uh, for, for the extremely privileged and where, where a higher price tag almost becomes part of the appeal, right? I don't think that it's necessarily applicable in every city and in every bakery, but a more expensive celebratory, beautiful bread on Friday or Saturday once a week with a higher price tag, I think, will sell out. I'm working in a vacuum. What I really hope is, is to encourage all bakers to take a small steps in that direction, right? You don't have to close the bakery and open it where it looks like a jewelry store. You know, make an expensive, uh, beautiful bread that you can explain why it's more expensive and see what happens.
2: Art is not what you see, it's what you make others see. Degas said that. And perhaps it's true about bread, too. It's all about capturing its essence, no matter the price or quality. In the process of writing Modernist Bread, co-authors Francisco Magoya and Nathan Mervold face some unique and beige challenges along the way.
5: We were working on testing all of these historical bread recipes. You know, because people put put so much I guess value on how bread used to be better and we wanted to to the best of our abilities replicate a lot of these historical breads going up until I think we went to the early 1800s, as early as Roman times. So we have this, like, huge timeline of, of making breads uh, from different periods of time. So we thought we we're testing these, might as well find a way to photograph them in a, a way that would display them, would do them honor, right? And so what we did is, is like, a, it's like a still nature, one of those paintings where you have, like, you know, fish and lemons, and there's a rabbit hanging in the back, and it's like this tablecloth and like, uh, you know, some sort of decanter or pitcher. So we wanted to utilize that vision, but with all of the breads. I think there's about a dozen different breads on this spread. They're all on different silver platters and trays, and we incorporated pomegranates, and we incorporated like artichokes and moss, and it was, it was, the backdrop was like, it's supposed to be like a French 17th century home.
1: Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but his taste?
5: It's, it was very involved, but it, It. I mean, just, it's breathtakingly beautiful. It's showing these breads that in reality weren't good. I mean, maybe one or two were, but bread didn't used to be good. It served a different purpose, and then it, it's, it's important to, to recognize that bread was something that you ate more of in the past. Now we rarely eat bread, and it's not part of our daily diet. The case is that you eat one or two slices a day, maybe you have a sandwich once or twice a week. But it's not like you get paid in bread like you used to. It's not like it's your one meal, so it better be dense and pack, you know, all of the the carbs that you're gonna need to work on the fields that day. I mean that sort of bread serves that purpose where if you had it now you wouldn't be able to give it away. I mean, it would be like, it's like eating sawdust, right? How that has been romanticized, uh, that bread was better in the past, is beyond me and beyond any, any form of, of logic comprehension. So hopefully people can get over it. But we wanted to do a pretty picture with these terrible breads. So
2: Ansel Adams once said, you don't take a photograph, you make it. And when you're making everything, the bread, the book, and the photograph, why not have a little fun?
5: One of the the greatest things working in this project was photographing the chapter openers. They featured the bread, of course, but we could go to town with it. And, you know, basically, the whatever it was in tied into its nature. So if we did a country bread, you know, it was in the country, but it was surrounded by, you know, like moss and trees. And so we created this beautiful scenery around this loaf of bread. The loaf of bread was was beautiful to look at, but it it w- and it was the center of attention. But it was everything that was behind it. It was like we were setting a stage to really bring this bread into to light and to make this super cool vision of it.
3: When we wrote Modernist Cuisine, my my first big uh, book, we made photography a big part of the book. Uh, we wanted to show people a vision of food they hadn't seen before, with either super close-up pictures or time-lapse or things. And food is really interesting. And food comes in lots of different colors, you know. Blueberries and raspberries and pure white things like milk. And there's a tremendous color palette and a tremendous texture palette. So when it came to bread, like, well, bread is all shades of brown or shades of white, You know, beige. And and it's hard to get around that. (laughs) Um, You you know, dough is basically white. Um, A very dark dough will be a little brownish. And when you bake it, okay, it turns darker. Well, (laughs) okay. What do you do about that? Well, to some degree, you just have to work within that limitation. You can't have bright color in every picture. Now, every now and then, we can do what we call a jam shot, where (laughs) jam comes in lots of colors. You could put a tablecloth, you could sort of accessorize to set your bread off, you know, bread in a wood-fired oven. Hey, you got the fire. That's orange. Ah, there's progress. But then, when you're trying to take pictures of the dough rising, boy, that's tough, because it's kind of this white blob. So we... uh, you know I think we we rose to the challenge um, it, it's up to the viewers to whether they think we succeeded or not uh, of course, a twenty six hundred page book on bread is probably only going to be opened up by someone who already kind of likes bread <laughs> so we we have that going for us
5: We shot uh, baguettes with like paint dripping off of them with the you know the blue, white, and red from the French flag and so Utilizing bread as the the vessel, the focal point of a beautiful environment, those were the days I was most excited to. Not that I was not other days, but these, these days were especially, particularly exciting to me because of, of, of what we could do with it. And frankly, it's awesome that Nathan lets us do these things, you know, because while he has things he wants shot in, and, and, and he, he does, uh, you know, he has his vision and whatnot, there's things that he just lets us do. Breadman, who is this huge character that we made out of bread, I mean, all he did was approve it, but we did it, you know, and that and that part was was super cool to put together. And, and in that case, it's, it's a sculpture made out of different breads. Bread was art in that instance, you know, it became art.
1: Whether or not you consider the act of baking an art, we can all agree that a perfect loaf, like a painting in a museum, is something to be appreciated. So next time you bake, stand in front of your bread and really take it in. What are its aesthetics? An intricate score, golden crust, an airy crumb. What was your medium? Heritage grains, grown by a local farmer, are the baker's version of oils, watercolors, and charcoals. Look at its process, Remembering the microbes that are responsible for its rise, or fermentation innovations that have affected its flavor. And what does it represent? The culture of a region, a story of immigration, or a holiday tradition? All of the things that go into bread, physically, culturally, and even emotionally sometimes, are tied up in the gluten structure, holding just as much of a story as anything hanging in the Louvre. This has been episode 16 of Modernist Breadcrumbs, Still Life with Bread, our season two finale. Thank you for coming on this bready journey with us. We hope you'll go back and listen to our archives as often as you need, and that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks this week to Sarah Owens, Maite Gomez-Rejon, Guy Frankel, Daniel Isengard and the hosts of HRN Happy Hour, Katie Mosman-Wadler and Kat Johnson. Modernist Breadcrumbs is produced by executive producer Michael harland Turkell and me, Jordan Werner-Berry, in collaboration with Modernist Cuisine. Our audio engineer is Noam Osband. Our theme music is composed by Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Lowes. Hear more on Instagram at carolclevelandsings. Modernist Breadcrumbs is a production of Heritage Radio Network. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. Thanks for listening. We love you breadheads.